is the beginning of a new series. After we wrapped up the, that brief series on some good reformer kings from, from Judah in the Old Testament, we're back in the Gospels now, and we're going to look at questions that Jesus asked, learning from very specific and important questions. If you are, if you've ever been in a counseling situation, or if you ever counseled someone or learned about what counseling is, you understand very quickly that counseling isn't about giving somebody answers and telling them what to do. Counseling is about asking good questions so that person, the counselee, sees for themselves what to do. They, they, they arrive at their own answers, but the counselor is able to help them clear out the, the things that are in the way of getting to what is, is, is within them, what they're able to do. And this is what Jesus did as a, as a good way of teaching. Good questions. And one of the most important ones is, is, is the one we're going to begin the series uh, today with is, who do you say that I am? If you go ahead and do a search on images of Jesus... These are among those that will come up. I just sort of randomly grab some and put them on, on PowerPoint. Some of these you might have seen before, others perhaps not. Some are, a couple of them are actually pictures of actors and, and one of the depictions of Christ in the last several decades. And there's different, and, and you can certainly go back a long time and see the way people depicted Jesus and there's a meaning to it, like the one on the bottom right there with angels and a crown and the clouds and Jesus holding the whole world in his hand. You have Jesus praying in Gethsemane, Jesus praying by himself. You have him on the cross, you have him rising again. One of the things I, I, I will point out too, that every culture does this, so I'm not slamming us, okay? But we tend to make Jesus look like us. Okay, now Jesus um, wasn't a white American. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things, but he just that wasn't him. He was Middle Eastern. So, in, in whatever sense a Middle Eastern person would look in terms of skin tone and 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 just their overall makeup, that's who Jesus was. One other thing, some of these guys are pretty good looking. <laughs> I don't know that Jesus was. I don't know that he wasn't, except that when, when the prophet Isaiah is looking ahead to Jesus and, and talking about um, what he's like, he said there was nothing about his appearance that would attract us to him. So that gives me the sense that he was probably an average guy physically. He, and he not, didn't really stand out, wasn't you know, the, the guy that all the girls in school would nod over. You know, but he was probably just an average guy. And yet, because it wasn't about his physical self, that wasn't the, the essence of what we had to follow, what he wants us to follow. So who is he is an important question, not just for the disciples in this moment that we read about in Mark chapter 8, but who is he is a question for all of us in an ongoing kind of way. Who is Jesus to you right now in this moment? Do you see Jesus in the same way you did when you were a child? Or, or maybe even 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Has, has the way that you, you view and understand 
Jesus changed. Did he change? Did you change? Who is Jesus when another mountain is before you? Which is why I used that that lesson with the kids a moment ago about mountain climbing. This story takes place in sight of this mountain. This this is is a picture from from Israel, or uh, I don't think it's Israel now, it's just north north and east of the Sea of Galilee, is Mount Hermon. Notice that it's, it's high enough to have snow on it. We usually think of the Middle East as you know, hot and arid everywhere, but the mountains are high enough, they, um, they will produce snow. It, it probably melts off in the, in the summer. But this was a very high mountain. It says in the 27th verse of Mark 8 that they were in the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So if you were in Caesarea Philippi, that mountain was in the backdrop all the time. You would see that. When Jesus taught and when he had something very specific to teach and when he had a very specific question to ask, as in this passage, he intentionally said those questions or or, or conveyed that question to specific people at a specific time and in a specific place. So why did he say this question to these guys here in view of Mount Hermon? Mount Hermon is um, in the ancient world, in the world in which Jesus and the disciples grew up. They were taught that that mountain may have been the place you read about in Genesis, and one of those really weird stories in Genesis where it says the sons of God got together with daughters of men or angels and they had children and those children were giants called the Nephilim. That's about where this was, at least according to some sources beyond the Bible. So I say that very carefully, but that story is in the Bible, okay? So the meaning of it is, I'm I'm not smart enough to figure that one out, but it's there. Well, if you go further on in Scripture... There is a giant named Goliath. And we know that story very well. David and Goliath. Well, Goliath came from a region very close to this mountain. Interesting. But beyond Judaism, this mountain was thought to be a holy mountain by many religions. It was a place of of mystery and of stories. and, and, And so... The disciples, as they see this mountain, they're perhaps thinking about what their dads told them when they were little, or maybe even the rabbi, about Mount Hermon. And at the very least, it would be a mysterious place that most people don't want to go to because they heard the stories and the legends, and you know, who likes mountain climbing anyway? We'll just you know, stay off of that thing. So what does Jesus do? Now I'm going to fast forward to the next chapter, then we'll come back to the 8th, because that has to, I want that kind of in the backdrop, what's about to happen. So in the ninth chapter, he takes Peter, James, and John, only those three of the disciples. He goes up that mountain. Now I'm trying to imagine, Peter, James, and John, uh, you want to go where? Up there? Now whether or not they said it, or whether or not they're thinking it, it's very, very possible Does he know what's up there? I'm not so sure about this. Okay. And Jesus took them to a lot of uncomfortable situations. He he took them into Samaritan villages, and they didn't want to be there because they didn't like the Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like them. 
He took them into a cemetery where there was a demon-possessed man that the whole city was terrified of, and everyone stayed away, and they went right there. He took them into situations where the, the crowd was, was, was getting out of control or, or the religious leaders were beginning to threaten Jesus' life. There was many, many moments where the disciples would not have chosen to go to a particular place or into, its, into a specific situation that Jesus led them into. So they went up this mountain. And while they're there, Moses and Elijah show up. Moses has been gone for a couple of thousand years. Elijah for, oh, five, six hundred years. No, more like 700. A long time. <laughs> and how can they be there? There's a backstory to that too, but I'll, I'll get, that takes me down a rabbit trail, which I won't travel. Okay? <laughs> but there's Moses and Elijah, but why them? Moses is the representation of the law, the law of God. Elijah is a representation of the prophets, thought to be the greatest prophet. Throughout scripture, you see an importance of an emphasis given to, to the Israelites of the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. You follow the law and you listen to the prophets. That, and, and if you do that, you're in good shape. So here's the representation of the law, Moses, the representation of the prophets, Elijah, on this mountain with Jesus. Then suddenly Jesus starts to glow bright white. Another strange story. I can't fully explain it. Some kind. He, he looked bright. And the disciples now are freaked out. At first, Peter thought this was really cool. And he's going to pitch some tents and they're going to hang out here for the weekend or whatever. But, and there's more to that too. But when Jesus starts to glow, they're terrified. What is going on? Then this happens. And this is really important. The voice of God speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. The voice of God, before Peter, James, and John, doesn't say, Moses is here. You guys forgot about the law. You better get back to obedience. Elijah is here. You better start listening to the prophets again. Nope. Here is my son. Here is the Holy One. Here is the Messiah. Listen to him because he supersedes all the law and all the prophets. That was the experience these guys were going to have. John wrote a, a good portion of our New Testament, his gospel, three letters plus revelation. Peter wrote two letters. In those letters, you can see the influence of these kind of experiences about who Jesus is, the the. the as one recent author calls it, the cosmic Christ and how big Christ is beyond uh, our understanding, not just the person Jesus, but who the Christ is eternally and, 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 and how our connection in faith with Christ, what that means. James didn't write any letters because he was put to death before he wrote anything. But I say that story to go back now to the eighth chapter because in those first couple of verses, Jesus first asked what others say. Who do people say that I am in verse 27? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. John the Baptist at this juncture in the, in the flow of the gospel story, he's already been put to death. 
So some might think that, that Jesus was a resurrected John the Baptist, uh, or others thought they were the same person. And because the stories flowed slowly throughout the area, and there's no, there's no media, there's no pictures or television or, or internet, obviously. So you don't, how do you know what someone even looks like? So the stories spread. So they thought he was John the Baptist, or Elijah come back, or other prophets. So Jesus asked them that question to get to the important question. But what do others say about Jesus? If you were to ask people in your life just a kind of an open question, if they're you know, willing to talk about it, what do you think about Jesus? Just no pressure, just what do you think? Who do you think he is? You'd probably get a variety of answers like, well, he's, I, I heard he's the son of God. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, he is the son of God. I believe in him. Uh, it's, it's, he was a nice guy who maybe did miracles. I don't know about that, but he, he, he has a good teacher. Or, nah, this was all a fabrication. I mean, there, 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 are, there are atheists who think Jesus never existed, which is, is so historically dishonest, it's, it's, it's laughable. Okay, if you want to deny the miracles and deny the resurrection and the virgin birth, okay, I get that. I mean, I don't agree with you, but, you know, just from a, from a rational point of view and, and historically, there was definitely a person named Jesus from Nazareth, okay, and followers that gave their lives uh, for him. But you get a whole bunch of different answers. But how you land on how you answer the important question, who you say he is, shouldn't depend on others. Certainly you can listen to them and they can tell you their experience if, if they are a follower and their lives have been touched and changed and inspired by Jesus the Christ. But it still has to be your answer. You need to embrace it. So who do you say that I am? And he asked that question in verse 29. And Peter, who is often the spokesman for the the, the 12, also the one that is very impulsive, the guy that jumped out of the boat when Jesus is walking on the water. You know, I'm going to walk in the water too, let's go. That, that was Peter, very, very impulsive, but he was right. You are the Messiah. And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Um, Jason referenced uh, the Chosen series, and if you'd watch that, you, you, you see too how often Jesus would tell people, keep this quiet, keep this quiet. And, and I like the way that in that show, they, they showed why. Because he didn't want the crowds to get so overwhelming. He didn't want to upset the religious leaders yet. There was a timing element to going to the cross. Jesus knew exactly when he would be crucified, where, and at whose hands. But in order for that day to arrive, he had to kind of calm the crowds and slow people down. Now, sometimes they didn't listen anyway. They still went and told people. But he says that once again here. But did Peter understand his answer? Messiah, what does that mean anyway? It is the Christ, the chosen one, the, the anointed one, the one that, that Israel was hoping for, it's, who's written about by the prophets that would come one day. But in the mind of Israel, in Roman occupation, the answer to the, the purpose and the meaning of Messiah was pretty clear. Most of them thought he's going to be like David. 
He's going to be a powerful military leader. He's going to lead us to freedom. We're going to wipe out the Romans and have freedom once again. That's what they wanted. Others, among the Pharisees especially, would think, no, he's just going to be a holy man who's going to lead us, and God's going to bless us with freedom. There won't be, even be a battle. And, and other versions of, of that was, was the thought of Messiah. So, when Peter said this, did he, was he thinking Messiah in one of those terms, or was he thinking Messiah the way Jesus intended it? And it looks like he wasn't because the next thing Jesus does is he disassembles their expectations about what Messiah is. Verse 31, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Of all the ideas in their minds about what Messiah would be, and even if, if they all wholeheartedly believe that's you, Jesus, you're the one. I doubt that any of them thought, well, suffering, rejection, and being executed was part of the deal. That's not Messiah. Come on. That's not strength. That's, 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 that's not winning. That's not conquest. That's loss. If I were one of them, I wouldn't have got past suffering, rejection, and being killed and heard the last thing he said. And after three days, rise again. He didn't say this just one time. Jesus said this repeatedly in the weeks and months before he went to Jerusalem where he would indeed be crucified. So it wasn't as if the disciples didn't know, and yet did they believe it. So this week begins the season of Lent, where we focus upon the passion of Christ and the story of him riding into Jerusalem as a king. Notice that on Palm Sunday, at least that's what the people thought. And then by the end of the week, he is arrested he is beaten, and he is put to death on a cross. So when Jesus died and took his last breath, were the 12 disciples hanging around the cross telling everybody, don't wait, everybody, he'll be right back. Nope. Even though Jesus told them numerous times, I'm going to rise again. Now, I wouldn't have done that either. I, I wouldn't have the courage to, like maybe in the back of my mind, I'm remembering, didn't he say something about rising again, rising again? No, the, the pain and the horror and the fear of seeing your, your friend and the man you believe is the Messiah just beaten to a pulp and hanging on a cross and bleeding and dying. There's nothing left to resurrect here. It's what? And they go in hiding. I, I cannot imagine the darkness that those men felt, and the, and the women too, from Friday night when Jesus died until Sunday when they began to receive word that he's alive and eventually see him. That Saturday must have been completely 
filled with fear and doubt and depression and oppression. And Wow. And maybe, maybe they hung on just enough to, well, he said three days, maybe, well, let's hide here, see what happens. I don't know. It doesn't tell us what their conversations were in the Bible. But that would be very human for them to doubt, of course. And so Jesus is, is taking apart their expectations about Messiah and saying, no, it's not that, it's this. And then, you know, Peter rebukes Jesus. There again, there's that impulsive guy. and he, So he goes from being commended for being the one to speak up about Jesus' identity as Messiah, and then in the next minute, Peter, you're Satan, get away from me. <laughs> boom, boom, back and forth. Just a, kind of an emotional roller coaster almost. And he's, he's rebuked, and then look at the, the 33rd verse. But Jesus turned and looked at the disciples. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You had a plan for what I would be in your mind. It's not that. So here's what it is. What are godly concerns? What is the, what is the plan and the path of God going forward if it's not this great king is going to come and wipe out the Romans and teach us how to be obedient to the law. Uh, that's not it. We cannot know who Jesus truly is until we deny ourselves and follow him into death. This is godly concern. This is the godly path. It says in the 34th verse, then he called the crowd to him. Now think about that. He's at the... Up until this verse, he's only talking to the 12. Here now he welcomes in the crowd, which is always somewhere nearby. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So, it's not just that the Messiah needed to suffer and die and then rise again. It's that he is clearing a path for us to follow to do the same, to deny ourselves. God, Jesus denied himself, his godliness, just the fact that he came, became human. It, says, it writes about that beautifully in Philippians 2. We are to deny ourselves in, in terms of what our first instinct is, which usually isn't good for me. <laughs> Sometimes as I become more understanding and align myself with the ways of Jesus, uh, those, those instincts get better, but I still have a natural self that wants to focus on human concerns. So I need to deny myself. I, and, and we know this in other areas of life, even people that have no belief in God whatsoever understand that if you want to lose weight, you have to deny yourself of the donut, etc. <laughs> I just made Jason hungry. <laughs> it doesn't take much, right? <laughs> so, so, so self-denial is, is something we understand 
physically, and I, I think even relationally, there's people in our lives we have to, no, nah, that person isn't good for me. I need, I need to, you know, maybe, maybe back off of that or, or treat them differently. But we have to deny the instincts that we might have for what's best, for what's good. And Jesus is teaching us that, and he's doing that. But then he says, pick up your cross. Now, looking back, we think of this, which is a nice depiction of a cross. It's uh, a little smaller than the real one, or the real ones. Understand that there were thousands of people crucified by the Romans. Thousands. I don't mean all in Jesus' day, but throughout the Roman Empire, they, they figured out that they, they, they wanted to instill fear in the nations they conquered so they wouldn't try to fight again. And to keep them in line, when there was anyone being executed, especially for a sedition, they were crucified at a very public place. And that was intentional, to keep everybody afraid. And, and people would sometimes hang there for days before they actually died. And, and imagine that. You're going about your daily lives and you get used to it in a way. Like, oh, yeah, there's people. And the family is weeping at, their, at the foot of the cross and trying to help them be as comfortable as they can until the moment finally comes. What a horrible thing. There's so many levels. So Jesus says you have to carry your cross. What message did that send? Carry your cross. Now, in traditionally, there, there's two ways of seeing this, according to scholars, and I'm not sure which is right. Um, the cross may have been like this in the sense of, you know, one piece that was already connected together. I mean, two pieces connected together. Vertical and horizontal look, you know, basically like this, big enough to put a person on, strong enough. And then they'd have the cross ready, and then you from the jail cell would now carry your cross to the point of execution. And when you got there, they had a hole in the ground all ready to go. they lay it down, lay you on it, put the nails on you, hoist it up, and plunk you down in the hole. And then you're, you're crucified. might have been that way. Other scholars think that the pole, the vertical part, was already there on site. And the, the horizontal was attached to you, tied with ropes on your shoulders, then you carried that to the point of execution, then they connected to this and you hung there. And it might have been both. You know, I don't think they're particular how exactly they did it, they just wanted to make people afraid. So, either way, when Jesus says to these disciples and this crowd to carry your cross, I go, what? Following Jesus is like following him into death. Now, for some people, that's been literal. For many people throughout history, even to this day, there is persecution of Christians throughout the world. Uh, and if you want to look into that a little bit more, there's a, an organization called Voice of the Marchers, and it's got a, it's got a good... Um, a good website uh, to remember by is persecution.com. And you can read there about what's going on around the world now about people who are suffering because they're Christians, thrown in jail and beaten and sometimes put to death. 
And um, so in some ways, this was literal. But Jesus is speaking more than that. Because you can die for something and die for all the wrong reasons with all the wrong motivations. And history's taught us that as well. So it's more than giving up my physical life for Jesus. It is giving up my life that I'm choosing apart from Jesus. And when that doesn't work out very well for you anymore, when you made your own choices, just what you thought best and didn't, didn't consult God or pray to God or, or seek out advice from, from other people that would, be, would lead you toward God, then, then your life isn't working out okay and probably not, maybe for a while. But eventually you're going to confront a mountain that is very mysterious and hard to get over and you don't want to go up there. And now what do you do? A mountain of, of brokenness, a mountain of, of, of torn and damaged relationships, a mountain of, of, of financial uh, debt, a, a mountain of homelessness for people, a mountain of, of pain that has, has been brought to their lives, a mountain of abuse, a mountain of oppression. Name your mountain. They're no fun to climb, and yet there you are. And who's Jesus then? And how's your plan working out for you? I need to deny my plan. I need to deny myself. I need to pick up my cross, my willingness to give up my life. That's what that is saying. My life such as it is, and let you, Jesus, show me another way. The path that Jesus made for us was not a path where we stand back and say, yay, Jesus, thank you for dying and rising again. I'll see you in heaven. The path was, okay, I've gone there for you, now follow me. I've gone there for you, deny yourself. I've gone there for you. Are you ready to give up your life as you've constructed it and let me help you? That's what this is speaking of. That's who the Messiah is. That's who Jesus is. Not some conquering hero. And we can look back and cast you know, dispersions at, at the disciples and the, the Israelites for not getting it. But don't we do the same right now? Don't we want Jesus sometimes? And I say we in a very broad sense. Certainly there, 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 are, there are people that are, that are following him that think he's going to be this conquering hero and come back and destroy all the evil. And, and, and others think he's going to be a political leader. And, and others think he's going to set things right in other ways. And He'll say the same thing. No, that's not it. Don't have human concerns in mind. Have godly concerns in mind. And the godly concern is that you follow Jesus into denial of self, into carrying your cross, into a willingness to die, and find life, love, and hope on the other side. And that's the beauty of it. In 36 and 37, it speaks of soul. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. Soul is your, your essence, your core, your true self, who you really are. And, and the other wonderful aspect of denying myself and carrying my cross and following Jesus 
into that path of descent, into the darkness, into the mystery, is that I don't just know better who he is. I know better who I am. And, and who he really wants me to be and to become. And, and, and I can show others that path as well through, through my life. I can gain everything, but if I lose myself in the process, what have I gained? What good is it in the end? But if I give that up for the sake of Christ, then he, 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 he gives me that hope. He gives me that light and that love and that way. And, and certainly some blessings. The condition of your soul is revealed when you face a mountain of trouble. If Peter, James, and John refused to go up that mountain because of the stories about that mountain because they were afraid, or they were afraid of climbing, they were afraid it's going to be too cold, or whatever else they might have been afraid of, and they stopped, they never would have seen the glory at the top. They, they, they had to follow the Savior into the darkness, into the mystery, in, in, into what they did not know, trust Him there, be terrified as the glory of God showed up, but blessed for it. That's the way our mountains are sometimes. We have to walk into that mysterious place, that, that, that unknown, and trust Him there and believe that God is going to reveal Himself to us as we trust him there. Just like he did, revealed himself in a very unique way to Peter, James, and John, he can reveal light, love, and hope to us. And then lastly, this is Peter's experience. This is, this is how he, he grew in, in understanding of who Jesus is. This is kind of a big picture thing, but this is important because, well, Peter witnessed all the miracles. Peter, uh, Peter's confession, that is what he said right here, you are the Christ followed by a rebuke from Jesus, that up and down thing, back and forth. Peter was there at the transfiguration. He witnessed that. Peter was there at Palm Sunday and saw the crowd hailing him as king in Jerusalem. Peter, at, at, the, at the Last Supper, swears his loyalty to Jesus. I will never deny you. Others might, but not me. And then he, they go to Gethsemane, and when the temple guard come to arrest Jesus, Peter says, I'll show him who's loyal, pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of a guard. Jesus said, no, not like that. This isn't about conquest or violence. And that set him up to deny even knowing Jesus in the courtyard outside the temple. And then um, this got white, didn't, got dark for some reason, on the two in the bottom. He, he is restored to Jesus then when on the, on the, after the resurrection when he's, um, they were fishing and he's on the shore of, of Sea of Galilee and Jesus asked him, do you love me three times? After he denied him three times. And then lastly, after Jesus ascended to heaven, after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, after the church began, after Peter was leading the church, he still had to learn who Jesus was because he was not wanting to take the gospel message to the Gentile world and he had to be convinced through a very strange dream and, and then eventually he did realize that, yes, these people too need the gospel of Jesus. Now, all of that to say that Peter, this is the Peter, Peter the Apostle, the guy at the pearly gates, 
I, that, that's another teaching. No, we'll get there sometime. Okay. But that, that, that's, that, that's the story, or at least the joke with some people. How, how many jokes are, you get to heaven, you meet Peter, and then it kind of goes from there, okay? So this Peter, if anybody would have got it, who Jesus is, and figured it out, it would have been him, right? He was messing up all the time. Even after the Holy Spirit came. Because some people look at, well, he didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Yeah, he did. And he still didn't get it. He still did dumb things. Paul calls him out in one of his writings. You know what that tells me? You mean I don't have to have it all figured out, Jesus? (sighs) Thank you. Who's Jesus now? That's all that matters. Right now. Whether you're facing a mountain right now, whether you're coming down the other side of one you've just been through, who is Jesus now? And you're, you're never going to get to the bottom of that. You're never going to get the, to the end of that because, because the real Jesus is unpredictable and full of surprises and, and not always safe. But if he was predictable without surprises and always safe, how could he help us? Because life, is it not filled with unpredictable moments, surprising moments, and moments that we're not safe and don't feel secure? So Jesus has to surprise us in a way we never thought of before because we've never been in that moment before. And we see something new and deeper about who Jesus is. Who do you say he is? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these scriptures that we can learn from, and I pray that that happened and will continue to happen. And I ask now that you would take us where we need to be in the sense of our understanding and our faith about you. Who are you? Who are you to each of us? And may we find faith and trust and hope in in that connection and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.